0: You're listening to sermons from Southbridge Fellowship in Raleigh, North Carolina. We pray that today's message helps you to connect to Jesus for life change. As we begin this morning, I, I simply want to go back there. We're not going to dim the lights. We're not going to roll the video. But I'm going to give you the, the words up on the screen. I'm going to just ask you to read it with me. Slow, contemplative, thoughtful. Um, and just listen to these words. So, so read it with me, would you? The American church has fallen asleep. We settle for less than God intended. Many of us are over-churched and under Jesus. Our city needs followers eager to experience spiritual transformation that leads to gospel saturation. It's time to reimagine. Now, I want you to understand something right at the very beginning. The intent of this is not to beat us up. It's not to to drag us down or or try to make us do better. Hey, if only we'd do better. Uh, The intent of this language is is to be very motivating, uh, to realize that this person named Jesus brings radical life transformation. Uh, And that's literally why we jumped into the book of Acts for this series, because it's all about the work of the Holy Spirit. It's all about what God does in the life of people to begin to do a work through those people. So, just understand, not beating us up, but how do we get motivated? How do we recenter? How do we reimagine what the church is supposed to be and what God wants to do in my life and through my life? And so, literally, in Acts chapter 2, what we see are thousands of people coming together, falling in love with Jesus, being uh, empowered and indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. Their lives are being changed, but here's the reality. They know nothing about the structure of church. Uh, There's no building. There's no organization. There's no denomination. There's no monthly business meetings. There's no spreadsheets. There's no strategies. It's just people falling in love with Jesus. Their lives are being changed, and they're impacting the world around them. So here's the question that I started wrestling with. How did we get here? How did we get here? I mean, you can study church history and and all, all sorts of things, and 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 kind of realize that you know we've in many ways, and I think that's where this idea of over-churched and under-Jesus comes from. So this morning, I, I want to preface what I'm about to share with you um, by saying simply this: I, I am a church brat. Okay. It's confession time. Uh, I am the guy that was pretty much born in church, grew up in church, went to church, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, pretty much any day that ended in why my family was involved in the church or doing things. And so I grew up with a lot of the programs and a lot of the activities and a lot of the rituals, the things that were, were sort of expected. Um, I was the, the kid. Anybody remember a mimeograph machine? Does this look familiar to you at all? If I'd... for for those who don't know, that you know, um, before you had printers and, and fax machines and copiers, there was this thing called a mimeograph machine, and you would type on it on paper and put it on this drum, and, and my mom was the one doing the church bulletin, so I was this kid. Goom, kachun, kachun, And and I fell in love with that smell. <laughs> and between that and the Sanford marker. From Mrs. Potter in fourth grade, I think it killed a lot of brain cells, just which may explain part. Eh, many of you are going, that explains so much about Pastor Dave. Ka-ching, ka-ching, ka-ching. I'm the one that's folding the bulletins. Mine were always the crooked ones, they didn't line up. And uh, I was the kid anybody else remember little glass communion cups? The big chrome trays? I'm sure Jesus had those at the Passover, right? And and uh, those little things. I was the kid after church. I would go collect all the cups, and you know, and, and I would always. I was the kid that took all the leftovers. <laughs> grape grape juice addiction back then, and um, and we take them home. We wash them. I mean, it was like church was just. Life. It was what we did, and, and my mom and dad deeply loved Jesus and taught me about Jesus. But my framework for what the church was was based on these experiences. And so I moved from the north side of Chicago down to the south side of Chicago, and and uh, you know I, I connected with a church down there, and I moved to Detroit. Uh, for, for a season of my life and I connected with a the church there and, and so all through my adult life I'm, I'm growing and I'm seeing pretty much the same types of things and activities at all these churches and so that created my framework for church then I stepped into pastoral ministry and began to lead a student ministry and then into churches and pastoral roles and preaching and teaching and doing all the things. And listen, I'm just going to be honest with you, I started doing it the way I understood it. And in so many ways, I didn't even understand why I did it. It was just my framework. It's, what I, it's the way my brain and my life was wired. Then I kind of went through a season of... of frustration in ministry now, now hear me there were moments of frustration and seasons of frustration but there was also incredible things going on so there was this tug of war in my heart in my life god i love you and i'm committed to your mission but i don't like your people i mean that's just those were honest moments you can ask my precious wife there were honest moments of god i love you and i'm committed to your mission but your people are rotten and, and so I, w- I would go through seasons of frustration, awesome stuff, seeing, seeing people rescued from sin and, and surrendering their life to Christ, and it was always wonderful because the good and, and the joy of ministry outweighed the bad, but then I got to a season of simply going, what are we doing as churches? I don't see the same replication of the life and the work and the ministry of Jesus that I see in modern-day church. If we're doing everything we can attempting to, quote, grow the church, and if, if we're doing everything we can to fulfill the mission of Jesus, but, but I'm not seeing the results of Jesus, then, then what's, what's happening? During that season, we pastored churches and served with churches, some of them well over 100 years old, and, and I truly think some of the founding members were still in the church. Um, But, I mean, man, when a church has been around for that long, can can I just say, there's a lot of traditions. There's a lot of ideas that are deeply rooted. Just just for fun, there was a a church that we were pastoring, kind of a little shotgun church, two center sections like this. There was a lady that sat right over here, kind of Alex, right right about in your spot right there. And uh, she would bring a little lap blanket. And she got tired of carrying it back and forth, so she would just leave it there. It just stayed. It just said, you left it in the pew. Don't mess with her blanket. That's her spot. And, and so, just for fun, I had to take it and move it. You know, my family, we would go up on Saturdays and clean the church, and the kids are like, you grab a vacuum, you do toilets, You do. and so we're just there, and just for fun, I, I would grab her blanket and move it up a row. And so while I'm preaching, I notice she's there. So next week I moved it up another row. I had her like in the second row before she realized this isn't right. This is not where I'm supposed to be. And she, sure enough, she moved back. But it's like, God forbid anybody sit in your seat. Amen. Some of you have seats. I look around the room. You have your seats. We have certain traditions. There's a framework in our mind of, of, of what church is, and so I thought to myself, if we're attempting to fulfill the mission of Jesus, but we're not seeing the results of Jesus, what's going on? So I went through a personal struggle and, and just begin to press in with the Lord and go, God, what is it that you've really called me to do? What is it you've really called your church to do? And so uh, I, I started to, to realize that we want the results of Jesus, but we don't want to use the methods of Jesus. That that in our own idea of church over 2,000 years, we've sort of constructed an idea that we call church, and most of it happens in this box, this box that that you and I came to today, this campus. We would call it a box, and it's like, and so in our heads and our hearts, we think this is church. Well, let me just remind us real quick this morning, this is a building, you And me are the church. So if we're going to reimagine church, it's not just about, you know, what does a campus look like or what does a stage look like and do we have an organ? Do we not have an organ? Do we have drums? Do we have a, uh, you know, uh, uh, an accordion? I think we need an accordion. I think we need a polka service. You know, I I don't know. I mean, um, would anybody up for that polka service? Country Western service. I mean, you know, we do all these things because we're trying to connect people with their wants and desires instead of Jesus. But Acts 2 is all about Jesus. It's all about the work of His Holy Spirit. And so uh, I have to tell you that I might get a little fired up this morning because this became very personal to me. This idea of simply pushing back what we think of church to what Jesus really calls church. And, and so I'm telling you right up front, I'm guilty. I, I admit it. I, I, I was the guy who was over church. This isn't just a phrase that we use in hopes of guilting people to do more. That, that is not the goal. We don't want you to do more. We want you to be more. We don't want to do more as a church. We want to be more as a church. And so I, I, I'm telling you right now, I'm, I was guilty. I was over church. I loved Jesus. Don't get me wrong. I loved Jesus, and I was passionate about his mission, but, but I was stuck in a framework of what I thought church was supposed to be. And so several years ago, I made a commitment to live my life a little bit different to live more on purpose. I wanted to be intentionally living for the cause of Jesus Christ to have greater impact. And, and so I came to a point several years ago of, of simply saying, God, you have blessed me to be a part of some incredible things. Literally around the world to do, to do ministry and see some incredible things that I believe the impact was, was pretty awesome. But at this pivotal point in my life, I came to that place of saying, God, whatever time I have remaining... Uh, whatever time I have left on this earth, this was well after halftime for me. I said, well, whatever time I have remaining, I want to make a greater impact for the cause of Christ with whatever time I have left than anything combined that's happened in my life up to this point. That, that's where I was. That, was. that was my life. That was my, my call. And to do that, I knew that I needed to commit myself to the methods of Jesus, and that is to make multiplying, disciple-making disciples. Jesus didn't just make disciples. He made disciple-makers. Get, this, get, get Jesus' math. Twelve guys, three years, radically changed the world. Twelve guys, three years, radically changed the world. Churches take hundreds and thousands of people for hundreds of years with no significant difference to the culture around them. If we're going to reimagine church, we want to reimagine it the way Jesus taught us to do it. That means to be part of an unstoppable movement, an intentional, relational, disciple-making culture where everybody's in. So let me set the framework just a little bit by asking a couple of questions no show of hands, no filling out a card there's no QR code, I just want you to think about these in your head, in your heart are we too dependent on Sunday? is, is the local church today too dependent on Sunday? in other words, everything has to happen here what we count, the nickels the noses, the, the behinds in the pew, you know, all those things it's like we're, we're worried about Sunday, and yet what I realize is that there's more days a week than just Sunday, anybody with me? Now, I'm not the brightest bulb in the box, right, after all that mimeograph smell and Sanford markers, but, but I do know that there's like 168 hours in a week, and the most religious of you, like Bryce and his team, who was here at what, four o'clock in the morning or something, prepping the campus and, and people picking up donut holes and making coffee, I mean, you guys are going to spend six hours maybe on campus? That leaves about 162 throughout the course of the week for us to be the church, and to do the work of the ministry. We come, we get excited, we get renewed in our walk with Christ, but are we too dependent on Sunday? Another question, are we more concerned with the gatherings than the going? Are we more concerned with how many people we sit or how many we send? Praise God for for those in the room that have shown up on campus, but is that the the landmark of of a successful, healthy, vibrant church? I don't think so. I think knowing that we leave this place on fire for Jesus, ready to share the good news of Jesus Christ because he's transformed my life, I think that's a healthy, vibrant church. So it's less about how many we sit and more about how many we send. Are we more upset over the methods or the mission? Let's get upset if we're missing the mission of Jesus. Let's not get upset over the methodologies of what we do or what we don't do. we get more concerned when I begin to ask the questions like, well, what's in it for me? That's what a lot of folks asked Pastor Scott addressed this a couple of weeks ago about membership. Well, what's in it for me? What's in it for you is the work of the ministry. Why should I become a member? Because you want to commit to be part of the work of the ministry. That's why. Do we feel like we have enough people already? or are we genuinely eager to reach our city for Jesus? Our vision said that there's an estimated 1 million lost people throughout the RDU greater area. That in the next 10 years, we want to have gospel saturation in our city where we encounter at least 100,000, 10% of them and have gospel conversations to see them come to know Jesus Christ. I mean, does that hurt your heart to know that there are lost people in our city? Lost people that you and I will encounter every day? Let's reimagine what church looks like. Are we locked into the ideas of church culture that that everything must be big, everything must be programmed, or that everything must be done on the church campus? That's That's a broken idea. We don't see that in the book of Acts. Do you and I live with the idea that the mission is carried out by paid professionals and those special people that have a unique calling to go be a missionary somewhere? It's way more than that, and we see it in the book of Acts because everybody's in, everybody's on board. So if any of these resonate as true for you, then perhaps our our way of thinking about the mission of Jesus might be backwards. And and that's what I want to press into this morning, that in many ways being over-churched has wired our brains to do church a certain way, and we simply have to reimagine that. So I, I, I remembered a story in a video that, that I saw several years ago. The guy's name is Destin Sandlin. He's got a web page called Smarter Everyday. Neat guy. He's an engineer. Any engineers? Y'all just think different than the rest of us. Um, but but the video starts with, with him, and I came across this several years ago, and, and I just loved it. Um, he was, he was, went went in the warehouse and he said, our welders, he says, now welders you think are kind of goofy, but they're like really creative. His welders had taken a bicycle and they removed the headstock. And at the top of the headstock, Todd, see if you can appreciate this. He's, he's my biker in the room. They put a gear mechanism on there that changed the direction of the wheel. Now, anybody in this room ride a bike? Have you ever ridden a bike in your life? Anybody? I see one young hand right here. Good job. Good job. Michelle, Bryce, you never rode a bike? Come on. Fess up, okay? Destin gets on this bike. Now, now imagine, when you and I ride a bike, you turn the handlebar to the right, the wheel goes to the right. When you turn the handlebar to the left, the wheel goes to the left. This bike, you turn the handlebar to the right, the wheel goes Left. It's doing this. So Destin gets on this bike and he can't ride it. I mean, just, just imagine for a moment. And this is, this is what he says. You can, you can read part of his quote up here. He says, I couldn't do it. He said, You see, you can see that I'm laughing. He is. It's the first time he ever tried it. It's in this little warehouse. He, you can see that I'm laughing, but I'm actually really frustrated. Could anybody resonate? You're thinking, it's a bike. I can ride a bike. It doesn't matter which way. way." He says, I'm really frustrated. In this moment, I had a really deep revelation. My thinking was in a rut. This bike revealed a very deep truth to me. I had the knowledge of how to operate the bike, but I did not have the understanding. Now, get this, get this, and, and think about this from a spiritual perspective. Therefore, knowledge is not understanding knowledge is not understanding. Look, he goes on, he goes, look, I I know you're probably thinking Destin's probably just an uncoordinated engineer and can't do it. But then he starts to juggle some tennis balls. And he goes, but that's not the case at all. He says, the algorithm, now here he gets nerdy on us, okay? Any nerds in the room? Say amen, come on, unite, it's all good. The algorithm that's associated with riding a bike in your brain is just that complicated, Now, I have to translate this to everything else we do in their life. There's certain rhythms that we do in life, and, and it's just so hardwired in our brain that to make a change is a huge deal. Anybody else make a New Year's resolution to go to the gym? First trip out, stop at the donut shop and show up at the gym. Tomorrow, I might go in right? But it's like to, to wire your brain, it's just, man, it's, it's a big deal. So he goes on, he goes, think about it. Now he explains all the details of riding a bike. So here it is. Think about it. Downwards force on the pedals, leaning your whole body, pulling and pushing the handlebars, gyroscopic procession in the wheels. Every single force is part of this algorithm. And if you change one part, it affects the entire control system. I do not make definitive statements that often, but I tell you right now, you cannot ride this bicycle. You think you can, but you can't. And he's proven that because he will go speak at schools and universities. He, he spoke at NASA, he, all, all these different places, and he will take this bike and he'll put it on the stage and in a 10-foot span, he will say, Bryce, come, you know, get a volunteer. Bryce, sit here. And if you can ride here, I give you this cash that's in my hand. And he's never had someone be able to do it. They try all sorts of different tricks. Like, well, if I just put my hands different or, you know, something. And he says, I'm telling you the truth. He can't do it. And so Destin spent eight months, eight months of his life learning to ride the, the backward brain bicycle. And, and finally, he, he got it, and he said it was amazing. He said, I remember that moment when, when he said, all of a sudden, the neuropaths, now he started getting nerdy, right? All, all the neuropaths in my brain rewired and opened up new pathways, and he said, all of a sudden, it connected. And he said, but any slightest little thing that would throw it off, like he said, if my cell phone rang, it, it triggered my brain and I lost it. And then he talks about how he'd he got his son, he'd made a, his bike, uh, a bike for his, his little five- or six-year-old, who started to ride it, like pretty quick, because and then he, then he got into the neuroplasticity of the brain and how it's easier to learn when you're young, and all those dynamics. So this hit me at a, at a season that was interesting in my life and ministry, when I first saw this video and testimony from Destin. Now he he finished because he he when he was wrapping up some of his statements he said once you have a rigid way of thinking in your head sometimes you cannot change even if you want to For me this became a reality in my life and my ministry Working with churches, it's like we say we want to change, we say we want to reach people, but to really redo that and to rewire our brains and commit our heart and life to do that, as much as we say we want to, sometimes we can't. It's interesting, Destin ended up in, in Amsterdam, and, and he thought, I'm gonna ride a bike. And so he he had some people around, they were videotaping him, and for 20 minutes, and everyone thought he was playing. Because for 20 minutes, he could not ride a bicycle. But he says, but all of a sudden, he said, "I, I felt it. He said, those pathways opened back up, and next thing I know, I'm riding a bike. It took him a while, but he fell back into that rut, for me, during that season of my life, this resonated because at that point in my life, and my ministry, I, I would not have told you at that point I was over-churched, but, but that's exactly what it was. At that point, one of the phrases that I was using a lot in my, in my personal life is that the hardest thing to unlearn is the thing you learned wrong. The way you first learn something is the way you expect it to go. I had a conversation recently with a young man over over here uh, about a year ago. And when we were talking about stuff, and, and, and he said, is there a class for that? And I immediately thought, you've been at church for a while. Because you expect the organization to provide things that God taught us to do personally. And we attempt to do organizationally what God intended to be done personally. Not not that those things are bad in and of themselves, but when it creates an an expectation, well, the the thing's going to take care of me. The organization will take care of me. And if you come and do all the things the organization provides, then you're good. But I think what we see in the New Testament church is a little bit different than that. So I have to say, have we locked in our brains about what we think about church? You know, what if we simply reimagined it the way it began? So that's where we're going to end up this morning. And the context of Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 42, is that these people are deeply in love with Jesus, and they are filled with the Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit has been unleashed, and these people are passionate about Jesus. Amen? So they show up, and and I love this because Acts 2, 42 to 47, is really the church being born. It's where we see uh, people coming to know Jesus. We see them loving each other. We see them gathering. Praise God, we see them eating. Amen? The concept of a church potluck comes out of Acts 2. They're eating. They're fellowshipping. They're meeting in homes. They're praying together. They're investing in one another's lives. They're discipling. They're multiplying. And so this is our idea of church. Now, let me just say right here, I love the church. I deeply love the church because I deeply love Jesus. And I came to the realization, if I'm going to love Jesus, I have to love the things that Jesus loves. And Jesus loves people and he loves his church. So I'm committed to the church. I'm committed to the local body because it's through a local body of believers that we reach people. Here's one of the things I love about the church is that I can be a Cub fan and still be loved. Right, Pastor Brad? He gave me a thumbs up, but he did not really affirm. I'm just saying. I just want to go on record. Where else can you have such a diverse group of people except in the church? Where else can a Cub fan be loved and cared for by a Cardinals fan? Where can a Panthers fan be loved and cared for by a Bears fan or a Packers fan? Where's Pastor Danny, Mr. Packers fan in the room, right? Or Dennis, who's a, a Ravens fan. We got a bunch of Eagles fans in the room, Right? Um, we have nc state fans we have duke fans we have unc fans we have people from all diverse backgrounds and races and and economic structures some that are they're like wealthy and others that come from a, a difficult situation our upbringings are different we are very very different people and yet we're a family amen i love the church because it's in this environment that we grow and we love each other. And that's exactly what we see in Acts chapter 2. So we're getting ready to read it. We're almost there. You with me? We're almost there. But before I do, I, I, I have to commend our church. I love our church. I truly believe that God is doing something unique here. I'm seeing people love each other and care for each other. Uh, what, what's happening in the apartment ministry? What's happening with Garland and the, the, the homebound, the shut-in, the assisted living centers? What's going on there when we talk about church planting? Uh, when I hear stories of small groups that are gathering and they're meeting the needs of people that they know have a need, and we learn about it on the backside, that's awesome. I love that. We have people who have been in difficult situations and people in our church have simply surrounded them and loved them and cared for them. We have people walking journeys of grief and and, and we have people who've experienced that journey and are walking close to Jesus and loving them and caring for them. I mean, these things are happening in our church and it's happening naturally and it's happening very organic and, and people are being loved and they're being cared for. And we want to continue to connect people to Jesus for life change. And while we connect people to Jesus, we connect people to people. And so I love just so many things that I'm hearing. I'm hearing of people who, bold and and feeling like there's no way I can do this, they're telling me about sharing the love of Jesus Christ with someone. For the first time in their life, sharing their faith, the hope that they have in Jesus with another person, that's exciting to me. I've heard a number of, of stories of people who have entered personal disciple-making relationships with other people to walk an intentional journey to help them grow to be more like Jesus. So, church, I commend you. Thank you for what you're doing, and I just look forward to God infiltrating the life of our church and shifting our culture to be a disciple-making church as we love on people. Um, when I surrendered the ministry, I, I was passionate about the ministry. And I still am incredibly passionate. But I've told a few groups recently that, that I've been passionate for a long time. But can I be honest with you? It's been quite a while since I've been excited. Ministry can be lonely. It can be difficult. It can be hard. You want to quit. And, and I've been passionate for a long time. But i got to tell you, the last several years here at Southbridge... I am excited about what God is doing, and I'm incredibly excited about our future. Are you with me? Acts chapter 2, verse 42, there's some things I want to share that as we move forward to reach RDU, uh, that we need to strive, we need to commit to be this unstoppable movement, uh, a people on mission with Jesus. So let me just read these six verses for us and set the context. I'm going to share four things with you very quickly, and then I'm going to give you an illustration and we'll wrap up. Acts chapter 2, verse 42, it simply says, they, those that have trusted Christ, those filled with the Holy Spirit of God, they devoted themselves. The word devoted is to be steadfast. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. That word fellowship, that does not mean potluck. I'm just telling you right now. The word is actually the Greek word koinonia, and it's fellowship in the context of serving together. If you've ever been on a mission trip or, or gone out to the apartment ministry and you're serving together and you're having fellowship, that's the word koinonia. It's less about the come and let's gather and let's hang out together. It's more about in the context of ministry because we're steadfast and devoted, Right? And so it says, to the breaking of bread and to prayer, verse 43, everyone was filled with awe. And I, I think the word everyone here is not just the believers, I think this is everybody in, in their sphere of influence. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the othermost parts of the earth. So Pastor Scott defined that as where you live, work, and play. I think that's everyone. Everyone, where you live, where you work, where you play, everyone was in awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles, verse 44, all the believers, now it's clarifying again, all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. Temple courts is not the temple, it's an open area. Uh, it's, it's actually a neutered uh, tense in, in, the, in the Greek because they're not going in the building, they're simply, it's an open area where they are free to gather They met together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes, right? So they're meeting in these homes. The word is literally dwelling. There's not enough place to put 3,000 plus people in their homes so they'd have these regular gatherings where they all come together, high five, let's keep doing this. This is awesome. This is how people saw the wonder and the awe—they were out in the community. They're living amongst the people. They're conveying the love of Jesus as they're falling more in love with Jesus and one another. That's where the awe was coming from. Every day they continued to meet together in temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. I'm pretty sure they had Miss Mary's chocolate pie. They had to. Verse 47: Praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people, all the people—that's the community. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Who added the Lord? Why? Because they were filled with the Holy Spirit of God. They were so deeply in love with Jesus, it was affecting every part of their life. You know what they're doing? They're experiencing spiritual transformation that leads to gospel saturation. That's exactly what's happening. We often look at this passage as the framework for church life, and we focus on the eating the fellowship, the gatherings, the prayer, but I think there's a lot more. That, that if we think about what did it look like back then and what can we learn, how can we reimagine, how can we rewire our brains and go back to be the church that God created us to be? There's four things. I'm going to give them to you quick. You ready? You have to listen fast. If we're going to be an unstoppable movement, we must reimagine church smaller. We have to reimagine church smaller. Verse 46 they broke bread in their homes. This was a diversification, a decentralization of the body of Christ. They, they were meeting, they, they would have gatherings, but listen, the ministry was being done in smaller, smaller settings. The dwelling, smaller because they were meeting in homes. The emphasis wasn't the location of the church or the big programs as much as it was the transforming power of Jesus Christ in the lives of these people. Amen? We are the church when we leave the building, and every place we go becomes our mission field. We enter our city spiritually transformed to have gospel saturation wherever I put my feet. Where I live, where I work, where I play, where I shop. Leslie asked me a crazy question the other day. She says, do you want to go to Walmart with me? Babe, you know my flesh crawls all over me at Walmart. I said, I'll go, but I have to see it as my mission field. We have to think smaller. Uh, not only smaller we have to think personal if we're going to reimagine church let's reimagine smaller but let's imagine personal i I love the language that's used verse 42 they devoted themselves they the believers the followers of jesus filled with the holy spirit of god Uh, the word literally means to be steadfast or continual In in other words they owned it they owned the ministry it was personal to them my spiritual transformation belongs to me, and I'm responsible for it to God. You, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you're responsible for the, for the gift that God has entrusted to you. So we have to think personal. Verse 45, they sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Who told them to do that? It wasn't this organizational structure that said, hey, we got to go do this. People were owning the responsibility that they had in the lives of other people. Now, listen, some of these people have only known Jesus 24 hours, 48 hours, 36 hours. We're not really sure of the passage of time, but verse 41 right before this is where Peter was preaching, and it says, and 3,000 people came to know Jesus that day. The very next verse, and they were devoted They were steadfast. They were meeting in homes. How long have you known Jesus? I don't know. Day, two days, three days. What can I do for you? How can I serve you? How can I care for you? Because I am so transformed by the power of God. They weren't showing up going, hey, what can you do for me? But they realized these other people had needs. And so they simply stepped up to meet a need. It wasn't an organizational process. It was a personal process. Personal. Everyone was involved. They were transformed, they were involved, they were committed to the mission. Third, it has to be inverted. If you think about this, smaller, personal, and inverted. In other words, we need to think of our organizational structure different. What it says here, verse 44, all the believers were together. The the word together is is not like a, a geographic thing. It literally means that they had one heart, one mind. In other words, they were all on mission. It didn't mean that they were always in the same place together. It meant that they were together. They were unified in mission. They had the same heart for Jesus Christ. They had the same mission, which was what Jesus gave them in Acts chapter 1. You will be my witnesses. So they weren't looking at the organizational structure saying, hey, what are we supposed to do? Let's go to church. Let's go to the gathering and find out. No, they were living on mission. They said, we're going to be witnesses and they were simply living as witnesses. Verse 45, they sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Who told them to do that? Jesus, right? Through the power of the Holy Spirit. It wasn't an organizational thing. There was no business meeting that they held saying, hey, do you think we should do this or not do this? Who has the greater need? I don't know. All I know is there's a need and we're going to go meet the need. No paid professional pulpiteers. Inverted, they were simply speaking to the fact that that organizationally everyone was involved in the mission. Sometimes we want to do organizationally what God intended to be done personally. Well, let's form a committee. Let's have a meeting. Let's do that. No, what if we just go do the work of the ministry? What if we go meet people's physical needs, not just to meet their physical needs, because honestly, Satan doesn't, go to, Satan doesn't care if someone goes to hell on a full stomach or an empty stomach. Satan doesn't care if someone goes uh, to hell clothed or unclothed. We're not just meeting physical needs, we're, we're meeting their spiritual needs, but sometimes to get to the spiritual need, we have to meet a physical need. And then not just pummel them with the Bible. Now that I gave you a shirt, I'm going to, you know, no. I'm going to love you in the context of personal relationship. I'm going to care for you. I'm going to point you to the Jesus that I love and I care for. But we have to be equipped to do that. Otherwise, all we're providing is a social gospel. We have to give them the truth of God's word. So that they too, just like we discovered in Acts 2, they repent and become a follower of Jesus. And then we disciple them to then pour their life into someone else to reach them for Jesus. It's interesting, too, because when we realize that they're opening their homes, 3,000 people came to church, came to Christ that day. Where'd they all meet? These dwelling places are not big homes. They're not 4,000 square foot homes with a, a grand meeting room. These are small dwellings. How many of these small dwellings would you need to accommodate 3,000 plus people? My answer is, I have no idea, but it's a lot. And people were willing to do it. They were willing to do it. They were just doing what they needed to do. And, And the guy that opened his home today is the guy that came to know Jesus on Tuesday. But he's growing and he's in love with Jesus and he sees a need and it's personal and he's meeting the need and he's opening his home and, and he's caring for them. He doesn't know a lot, but what he knows, he's sharing with him. One of, one of my, if, if there was such a thing as just a, a guy that I admire and idol, was a guy he pastored in, in Memphis. His name was Herb Hodges. Herb Hodges was passionate about disciple making and in his book, Tally Ho, the Fox, he talks about discipleship, and he simply says, discipleship is being half a step ahead but moving. We've, we've created this organizational structure that says you have to go through all this training and have these degrees and put stuff on your wall and everything else only to be able to be allowed to do something, and I go, that is wrong. If you have Jesus, you have all you need. If you have the power of the Holy Spirit in you, you have all you need to do ministry and make it personal. To invert the system and say, I am a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul tells us. He says that pastors, your work is actually to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. No degree required. If you know John 3.16, teach somebody. And then you move on to John 3.17, and you teach that, and you move on to John 3.18. Half a step ahead, but moving. How qualified do you need to be? You need to be in love with Jesus. Growing in your walk and relationship with Jesus Christ to begin to invest in someone else. That's what they're doing. They inverted the whole system. But fourth, it has to be outward. Smaller, personal, inverted, and outward. Verse 47 says, Praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. This is not just the church people. These are not just the ones that repented. This was all the people. In their Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, where they live, work, and play outward because every day people were being added to their numbers by the work of the Holy Spirit of God. They were engaging lost people in a broken culture, uh, and and because of their own spiritual transformation, every place they were going, uh, there was spiritual transformation that led to gospel saturation. When they left their home and they went to the marketplace, that became their mission field, and because they were so spiritually transformed, the gospel saturation took place at Walmart. Gospel saturation could take place at Firestone. Gospel saturation can take place at your workplace. In your office, in your home, in your neighborhood. Why? Because you are there. And we have to begin to think and reimagine what does church look like when it's outward? We're going into the apartment complexes, not simply inviting them here. We're going to broken places. We're going into our city where there are lost people. We have to engage lost people. Where do we find lost people? Some of them we find at church, the rest we find out in the world, and we have to go on purpose intentionally. Sometimes Jesus ended up in the wrong place at the right time, and He did it on purpose. He didn't go to compromise the truth. He went with the truth, holding the truth, embracing the truth, stepped into a broken place, and fixed it with the power of Christ. Amen? Let's not look at our culture as someplace we have to go try to fit in. Let's go with the intent that we're going to make it different because we're going there, and because we're going there, the Holy Spirit is going there with us. So we have to think outward. So to think smaller, to think personal, to think inverted, um, to think outward should be the most natural thing for a follower of Jesus to fulfill the Great Commission because that's exactly what they're doing. They're fulfilling Acts 1-8 right here in Acts 2. They're fulfilling Matthew chapter 28, the great commission. You know it. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This was Jesus' commission to his disciples. Verse 20, and teaching them, get this, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. In other words, to walk in fellowship and relationship with me, that it literally transforms your life. That's what he's telling them. But you're not going to do it alone. I will be with you always. When you look at the Great Commission, Matthew 28, there's, there's one command, there's one verb. One verb, and it's to make disciples. There's three participles that go with the making of disciples, and that is to go and to baptize and to teach. Those are not separate commands. It's one command. It's one verb action, make disciples. How do you do that? You go. You baptize, and you teach. So what is discipleship? It's going, it's baptizing, it's teaching. It's walking a personal journey with someone, intentionally stepping in their life just to walk a journey to help them become more like Jesus. You and someone else, not trying to be more like each other, but both of you trying to be more like Jesus, to teach them. So, uh, I've said it several times recently, but if you have become a follower of Jesus and the gospel came to you and you received the gospel, you received it on its way to someone else. You hear me? If you've received the gospel, you received it on its way to someone else. So, the principle in discipleship is that every reached one can reach one and teach one to reach one. That's, That's literally discipleship. In a simple fashion. Now, let me, let me close with a, a couple images for you. Because in October, we introduced what we called our mission measures, and, and it's so cool. And if you have your Bible open to Acts 2 42 to 47, you may want to just draw in your Bible and just draw a triangle around those verses. Because what I see being lived out here is exactly uh, what we are referring to as our mission measures. When we think about personal relational discipleship, we want to focus on three areas of, of growth. One I introduced last week is this foundational process of simply enjoy God fully. This is private. This is, this is you in your walk in relationship with Jesus Christ. That at the most intimate level, he knows what's in your head. He knows what's in your heart. <clears throat> And everything that's going to happen in your life is foundational based on you enjoying God. Now, what do you do with that? Because God never called us simply to, to come to Him and be alone or to not do something with what we have. So, when we think about this in terms of a, of a triangle or a mission measure, uh, one step could be, well... Let's walk through this. Enjoy God fully, most private. Give me the next one. We talk about live as family. Now it begins to get personal. If I'm growing with Christ in my private life, personally, I begin to interact with those that I love the most and those that are closest to me because it begins to affect my personal life. That includes my church because you're my family. Even though I'm a Cub fan, you're my family. Are you with me? We're family. We, we live as family. I learned to love my family. I learned to serve my family. I learned to care for my family and help meet their needs, spiritually, emotionally, relationally, physically. You and I are responsible for each other. Then there's a, another component where I go from private to personal, and now it begins to impact me publicly. How, how is my public How am I impacted spiritually in my public life so that when I go somewhere, I am declaring the the love and the grace and the mercy of Jesus, that that I take a risk. And when we say take a risk, it's simply taking a step of faith. God, I'm willing to do something that I am incapable of. And if you don't show up, it's going to be a disaster. Now, if if I'm growing in my relationship with God, but nothing's happening here, it looks something like this. And after the first service, Mark Myers over here came and he said, what's the point? You get it? It's, a da- it's totally a dad joke, right? If we're supposed to be building a spiritual triangle, yeah, see, now, now you get it. If, if we're supposed to be building a spiritual triangle, an equilateral triangle, and, and when David Ennis heard me say that a few months ago, he's like, oh, I love that. He's a math guy. So he loved the idea of equilateral triangle, you know? But but if, if we're supposed to be equally growing in all areas of life, right? Teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. What's the, what's the point? If if it doesn't affect me personally or publicly, but, but then we can also grow out of kilter. And, and there's a couple demonstrations of that, right? If if we're not growing equally in some areas, we're growing unequally. Give me another one. Right? we want to take a risk we want to do things we want to we want to jump out this becomes more of a social gospel process if i'm not structured and founded in the person of jesus christ and i'm not walking in intimacy with him and with others this becomes a social gospel i'm going to just go do stuff for people and if i go do more it becomes more of a religious action there's another one that i want to share this this is kind of weird this is religion In its very best moment, this is is religion. I have no foundation of a relationship with God, but I want to do stuff. Or I feel obligated to do stuff. Uh, I'm going to love people more. Well, if you you don't know what it is to love God and to be loved by God, you can't accurately love people. And if you're out trying to do stuff, well, I'm going to go help people and do things. Uh, That's religion. Religion is man's best attempt to reach God. So we're going to close simply by asking, where are you in your walk in relationship with Christ? As we reimagine the church, where do you fit in that process? Do you know Christ? Have you come to know Him? Have you trusted Him? Are you growing in relationship with Him? Do you need people? Do you need your church, your family to come alongside you to help you grow, to know God fully, to enjoy Him, to learn to live His family? To learn to take a risk by faith to make an impact for the cause of Christ because God has to first do a work in us before He can do a work through us. But as He's working in us, it has to come out, it's got to go somewhere. Let's reimagine and be the church that He created us to be. Father, in this place, we surrender our lives to you. You are good, you are gracious, you are loving, you are compassionate. Father, I thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit who empowers us. Lord, I pray that you give us as a church the capacity, Lord, to to rewire our idea of what we think church is and, God, to get an accurate perspective that, God, you've called me personally to join you in your work. And as we gather together, Father, all of us, we become the church personally involved, taking ownership of the mission, living on purpose in relationship with other people, engaging lost people to see them come to know Christ. Father, would you do a work in us that only you can do? God, make us a church that is just committed to your mission. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to sermons from Southbridge Fellowship in Raleigh, North Carolina. If you have a question about the message you just heard, email us at info at For additional resources or service information, visit us at sfchurch.com.